uh, it's called the uh, next down a bit further. No, it doesn't seem to be here. Fact to the area. Uh, it doesn't seem to have recorded. It, it's, uh, okay, it's, is that better? Is it one of these? No, something has gone wrong. I'll, I'll find it. I, I can't see it there. It doesn't seem to have recorded. Let me just try. Well, this uh, presentation, my name is Brian Johnston, and I teach here at Catholic University. So this presentation addresses a particular problem of a philosophical character, but there is a religious dimension which uh, I will include. So it's about a well-known problem, namely the fact-value dichotomy. And I'm going to suggest that there may be a solution via the philosophy of gift. I'll start with a statement from Max Weber, the famous sociologist, who said that statements of fact are one thing, statements of value another, and any confusing of the two is impermissible. So the question is, can we find a way of relating facts and values such that there is no confusion, but there is a positive relationship between the two. But what do we mean by these terms? The usual current definition of a value is a property of objects. I'm going to return to that idea, objects. A fact, well, as, as Charles Taylor said, there weren't any facts before the 17th century. So it's a historical term. Factum in Latin means, of course, what is done, or in more modern parlance, a fact is what is, and then crucially for many of our concerns, including biomedical concerns, what can be determined by science. There are four related notions that, that essentially mean the same thing. The naturalistic fallacy, the fact-value dichotomy, the is-ought distinction, and physicalism. But I'll concentrate on the term, the fact-value uh, distinction. Now, I'm going to suggest that this has a basis in a very significant cultural event or transformation especially identified by Charles Taylor in, in two of his books very clearly. The first one is The um, Sources of the Self, and then again in his most recent book, A Secular Age. So I'm going to draw quite specifically from the analyses of Charles Taylor. 
Now, the question is, basically what happened is, in, at a certain historical period, there was lost a certain unified vision of the world. If I just take particularly that as spelled out by St. Thomas Aquinas, guiding the world was the reason or providence of God. And that reason was participated in in our reason and in the reasoning of others and also in the world. As we heard in the previous talk, God creates the world and guides the world. So in this vision of things, there could not be a radical separation between my knowing and your knowing, between your mind and my mind, or between created realities. So I just recall the images we saw in the previous talk of, of mountains and trees and rivers. These are all guided by God's reason. Now, the division splits that apart. So you now have subjects, namely ourselves, and the world becomes an object which has no inherent meaning or reason within it and becomes, as you would know, just matter to be exploited. So the, the key phrase is the separation of a subject, ourselves, and an object. In that framework, this question emerges. Where is lo morality located? Is it in the subject, in us, or is it in the world? In the vision of things I just described, it, it can't be in the world. So then you have different schools of thought emerging. Is the system of moral rules somehow inscribed in the object? This was a way of seeing things which we do find has been followed, especially in the Catholic tradition with its emphasis on natural law. So that there are laws in mountains or in your bodies which constitute moral laws. Then you have the opposite view that says, no, morality is found in yourself, in us. And this is the view that I want to um, uh, address. Now, you know from your history of philosophy that the famous name in this development is the, the Scottish philosopher Hume, David Hume. And this is a famous text. I'm, I'm sure this is known, but it might help to have it before our eyes. In every system of morality which I have hitherto met with, I have always remarked that the author proceeds for some time in the ordinary way of reasoning and establishes the being of a god or makes observations concerning human affairs, when of a sudden I am surprised to find that instead of the usual copulations of propositions is and is not, I meet with no proposition that is not connected with an ought or an ought not. Classic statement of the is-ought problem. Then, a key statement 
again by Hume, morality therefore is more properly felt than judged. It lies in yourself, not in the object. This is still a very influential way of thinking about morality. I, I was invited to a conference not so long ago and the description was this is for people who are interested in moral sentiments. This is Hume, still very influential. Now if we move, oops, I pushed the wrong button. These then are the, the texts that I, I wish to comment on. There we go. Now, I'm going to suggest that there is a way of solving this fact-value dichotomy without confusing one or the other. If we follow through the theme in English language philosophy, since that would be most familiar to us, we have Hume and then you have the successors of Hume like Moore. The distinction between fact and value and is and ought became something like a dogma in English-speaking philosophy. It has now been severely criticised, for example, by Hilary Putnam. He's written a book called The Collapse of the Fact-Value Dichotomy. Putnam comes from the pragmatist tradition, is a follower of Dewey, or Dewey, I should say. So I think that's rather significant. Putnam is not coming from a Christian-influenced tradition. His basic argument is that in the way we speak with one another, we don't make these sharp distinctions. Another critic is Alastair MacIntyre, himself an expert on Hume, who argues on a somewhat different basis. He comes at the situation from the basis of a teleological or goal-oriented view of human life. His point is that is includes ought. That I, I can't use the word is of you or of myself without including moral rules. I'm not sure whether you would accept that. I have a question, granted that I can't think of you as a person without thinking of your goal or myself without thinking of my goal. How can I establish that I ought to seek my goal? That, that's the question. Now he would say, following Aristotle, that that question doesn't make sense. We have our set goals in life our perfection, it would be unthinkable that we wouldn't want to pursue that. 
But I suggest in our modern philosophical context, we do need to think about that, and that's what I propose to do. So, how then to deal with this? I'm going to suggest that we follow the thought of a very influential French philosopher called Jean-Luc Marion. Uh, Marion has Marion is a Christian, as you know, Catholic. He has developed his thinking in quite a number of books. One famous one dealt with the question of God. I'll just mention this very briefly, since God is our concern in this meeting. This book was called God Without Being. Uh, briefly what he does, he seeks to analyze phenomenologically the meaning of being and criticizes that as an inadequate way of speaking of God and suggests that we can approach the question, only approach the question through a deep analysis of what gift means. As a philosopher, he doesn't want to prove that God exists, but he says this is the way we can think about God. You could make a further jump and then say we believe in God. But he wishes to stop just on the limits of human rational thought. So what I have to say is, is developed from Marion, but it includes elements that he would not agree with. He has been criticized by a number of authors precisely because he remains too fixed in phenomenology and insufficiently intent, attentive to concrete relationships. So I, I can just put my thesis to you rather simply, but let me just anticipate by introducing the thought of God. What would happen if you did pursue the God question? Now, St. Thomas Aquinas says in his treatment of the Holy Spirit that the proper name of God is gift, donum, which I think is a very fruitful idea. We experience God through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So God is experienced as giving. Now, we often say that God gives God's self. I'm not sure that's quite adequate I would suggest that God's self is giving. So God is giving without any qualification whatsoever. You don't need any other word. And of course, with a slight modification, you end up with grace. The gift of grace is fundamental. So it would seem to me that if we can think of God that way, God experienced as a giver in the gift of grace we have received we could think more clearly about these philosophical questions. But now I will move to the philosophical question. So you have three elements in this framework. The giver, the gift, and the receiver. And within this framework, I suggest we might find a solution to our fact-value problem. 
I'll just link this with some particular ethical contexts. The Catholic tradition and its tradition of the natural law does have a problem with the fact-value distinction. Very briefly, one element of that tradition does seek to derive moral norms from an analysis of the structures of human biology. That, that's a fact. Uh, concerning matters of contraception, for example, that's a problem. I'm not sure uh, I have participated in evangelical gatherings on bioethics, but in, your, in the evangelical tradition, natural law is not a major item. Historically, it was very strongly criticized, of course. So I, I just mentioned what I just said to indicate that the problem is still very much with us. Now, some sort to derive moral norms from objects out there including the human body. Others say, no, you can't do that. You have to take moral norms from the human subject. Well, does that mean we invent our own morality as we go along? Somehow you have to relate the two. But you have to do it without trying to derive values or moral norms from objects. I refer again to the discussion of ecology that we just heard. Those who seek to develop an ecological ethics have a problem. We can examine the structures of ecology, but how do we get moral values or norms? It's the same problem. So, this is the way I suggest we might approach it. You and I, I suggest, if we ask what am I fundamentally, I am a receiver. I receive my being from God. I receive my being from my parents. I am a receiver. A basic choice I have to make is whether I freely choose to accept that. That's, the, that's who we are. We are receivers. And by receivers we become capable of giving. That's who we are. Receivers, givers. Or gifted givers. Now, that there is one fundamental role behind all human beings, and that is the role of a receiver and a giver. It's very simple, and suppose I wish to give a gift to you. I recognize you as one who is a receiver of gifts. I have chosen to be a giver. I choose to give you a gift. I am required by the moral logic of that to seek accurate information as to what gift would be a true gift for you. I need to know the facts because of the moral imperatives built into my fundamental choice of myself as a receiver and a giver. And this works right across the board. I would like to link it with ecology. In this theory, I see all created things as receivers and givers. So I do have a responsibility to a tree I'm not advocating that you embrace trees. Now, there's not much I can do about most trees, but in principle I do have an obligation to give to that tree what that tree needs to become the most perfect tree it could be according to its nature. 
And this, I suggest, is a framework in which we can deal with facts and values without confusing them. And behind it all is, as I suggested briefly, the knowledge of God as giver, or rather giving. God is giving, we are receiving. And that's what makes sense of all ethics, I suggest. Thank you. Yes. Um, what is meant by subject? Yes. What is meant by object? Yes. Well, the um, I'll have to do it historically. You, you don't find the word subject in medieval philosophy. It's not there in St. Thomas. It, it emerges with that kind of philosophy which begins with consciousness. So subject means a centre of consciousness. And it's a familiar concept in those philosophies which start with human consciousness, following Descartes and also in Hume. Now, the object originally simply meant the object of an action. After the division of subject and object, it becomes something out there which does not have any inherent reason or value in it. That's the sense in which object is used in the conversation I was talking about. Mm -hmm. So what confusing me is another person's subject or an object in this way of thinking. Yes. Now, you, the word object is, is tricky. We have the word objectification, don't we? And we don't want to treat another person as an object. But we can say in English that someone is the object of my love. That doesn't cause us any trouble. But the problem sense of object is something which is considered apart from any subject or out there by itself. Now, if I put it into the gift framework, what I ha one way in which I may not relate to another person is to make them that which is to be given. I can't give someone as a gift. I can't make them an object in that sense. But if by object I mean the object of love, I can relate to somebody. Would that help? A little. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of literature on this, as I'm sure you know. Yes. Any other?